Good morning, everyone. I've been trying to get more into meditation lately. I know it sounds weird, but that's how the sermon starts. <laughs> trying it out, you know, uh, different forms, reading about it, and uh, mindfulness has be- become, been, become, uh, been becoming more and more important to me. Uh, I get so tired of feeling distracted all the time and kind of all over the place. Uh, Kristen could tell you there's just some times when I'm like hyper and I'm like going every which way. And I came across an interesting concept along those lines in a book I was reading. Uh, The book is called West of Jesus, uh, which has literally nothing to do with Jesus, if you like find it in the bookstore. I found it in the religion section of a library bookstore, and it should not have been there. (laughs) Uh, It's about surfing, and it's about sort of mythology and uh, sort of the reasons we believe things and stuff like that. It's a pretty good book, but a very misleading title. Um, but it talked about the idea of a flow state and how surfers, when they're surfing, will get into a flow state where it's like time is standing still and they're like dancing on the waves. And uh, I looked it up and I did some reading. So here's a Wikipedia page about it. In positive psychology, a flow state, also known as the zone, is the mental state of operation in which a person performing an activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement, and enjoyment in the process of the activity. In essence, a flow state is characterized by complete absorption in what one does and loses sense of space and time. And this is obviously really important to high-performance professional athletes, especially surfers, because what they're doing is incredibly complex. It's a bunch of technical motions and sort of, you know, interactions of physics, and it needs to be as fluid as possible. I remember reading uh, an interview by, uh, with Hall of Fame pitcher Randy Johnson, if you're up on baseball, uh, and he said the big breakthrough for him, he could throw the ball 97 miles per hour every time, but it was incredibly inaccurate for the first, like, five years of his professional career. And he said the big breakthrough... Uh, was when he learned to point his foot in the right direction when he landed. You know, he took a wind-up and he stepped down. The angle of his foot determined everything about where the pitch went by millimeters. And I just thought that was so fascinating. And, of course, Randy Johnson is famous for, in an all-star game, throwing the ball at 97 miles per hour behind the batter to intimidate him. And so it's kind of one of those things where it's like it could get out of control when you're throwing a ball that hard. Um, but when you're talking about millimeters and where your foot lands and how, what your balance is on a surfboard, uh, the flow state puts all those things together. So you're not thinking about your foot. You're thinking about the moment of the game. You're seeing the forest and not worrying about the individual trees. Uh, the military is actually very interested in this as well. Uh, they're actually developing a technology to induce a temporary and artificial flow state. An NPR did a piece on it a few years ago where uh, this inexperienced NPR reporter goes in and does a simulation of a sniper where enemies are, enemy targets are coming and she has to hit them with an electronic gun. And they come faster and faster. Eventually she's overwhelmed and she doesn't do very well. They zap her with an electroshock and they do the same simulation over again. She thinks it's a different simulation. She thinks it's about three to four minutes on easy level and she hits every target. But really, it was the same simulation. She was in it for a half an hour, and she literally did not miss a single target because she was in this 
singular immersion of focus. These pictures of complexity and execution align with how I feel about my life a lot of the times, not in a flow, but feeling like there's too many moving parts. Uh, the desires for the outcomes of our lives. Positive psychology is all about visualization and seeing things as they are. Uh, one uh, spiritualist I, I listened to on a podcast described a flow state as having an internal GPS, knowing exactly where to go, exactly what to do at exactly the right time. <laughs> And the ancient pathway that we draw upon when we look at our spiritual life and our practical everyday life to find some sort of flow, some sort of harmony, some sort of sense that we are where we're supposed to be and do what we know we ought to do is wisdom. You don't hear Proverbs very much in church, partly because it's uh, not actually in the liturgical calendar except for like once every three years. So we just, it's just not going to happen. But um, then partly because... A lot of people would say it requires less sort of interpretation and refinement. A lot of individual proverbs are not much different than our colloquial ways of saying, you know, don't be stupid, work hard, be honest, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, it would be like a pastor getting up and just reading a series of fortune cookies. But, but we do turn to the book of Proverbs today, and I just want to ask, uh, what is wisdom? What are these proverbs? What is this all about? Uh, Proverbs are pithy sayings, platitudes, aphorisms, uh, observations. They're not laws, they're not universal constants, but less than subtle guidelines, suggestions, uh, sort of the oughts of the Bible, if you will. At times they seem like the Yoda-style musings of God's imagination. And as we turn to this wisdom passage today, Proverbs 3, we see three commands, three imperatives, three oughts that give substantive clarity to what you could see as a flow state of sorts for daily life, the path of God's character. Um, today's scripture is not so much an exegesis as a reflection, a reflection on our heart and our eyes, how we get from the source of life into the purpose of it. And we see in the first two verses, verses three and four, a compassionate posture of the heart. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. And the focus of these verses is compassion, the posture of the heart. Um, the heart, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's not just talking about, you know, your heart as the emotional center. That's kind of what we talk about now, songs about heartbreak. In the Bible, the heart is the whole life. Proverbs 27, 19 says, As water reflects the face, so one's entire life reflects the heart. The inscription of one's life is not too foreign a concept. We have it, you just have to go to a cemetery. You'll see it. Every epitaph is an inscription of a person's life. Sometimes it's just numbers. Sometimes it's something colorful or interesting. Um, and so rather than getting to a funeral and looking backward, the Bible's talking about writing your epitaph, writing your inscription right now on your, on your heart, on your life. What is the, the branding of your life, so to speak? Love and compassion will last from now beyond our life. And wisdom is more than simply book learning or rote. It's some define it as the practical application of knowledge. 
Wisdom is a reflection of our life. And when I read about this passage and the depth of cultivation, I think of this meditative state. We're trying to walk through our lives in a way of love, in a way of compassion that supersedes and overruns our most base desires and our uh, worst self. I don't want to think about what angle my toe is at. That's the one thing in Christendom is you tend to say, oh, that's the worst thing about me, so I'm just going to focus on that and get that right. And really, it's not about focusing on the toe. It's about getting the whole thing in a flow. It's a rhyme. So, uh, so what does true compassion look like? I just really have questions. You know, what is wisdom? What is compassion? The hard questions this morning, right? I don't always know where to begin, uh, but I know that the compassionate heart seeks the benefit of all instead of the benefit of some or of self. This proverb looks at the tension between pleasing some people in our lives and loving everyone. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 47, You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his, the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? This compassion is meant to be an active seeking out love, an inconvenient love, a love that is stored up within us and overwhelms those dark sensibilities that we have. It drives us to compassionate action against what society tells us and sometimes our own upbringing. This is a love that wins over. It's persistent and it's not passive. Um, it's easy for me to default to passive love, but... I read somewhere that a house made of passive love has within it a room for hatred. And this reflection on love, of course, leads us away from ourself. It leads us back to the source of all love, to God. And the next command pivots from our heart, what our heart should look like, to the path down which our life travels, according to God's will. Verses 5 and 6 show us a trusting path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Many traditions try to align uh, following God with prosperity, but in these Proverbs, the focus is simply on connection with God. Trust in the Lord is greater than prosperity. It supersedes it. And the path, when straightened, does not become broader, softer, clearer, we don't have an end from the beginning sense of it. We're not clairvoyant. We're actually entirely focused on not worrying about the end, focused on the moment. A straight path indicates this flow-like state to guide each step. Trust in the Lord leads to not necessarily comfort. It leads to confidence in the face of disparity a willingness to walk toward love in the face of opposition. 
And above all, the key ingredient, as I meditate and read uh, these verses, the key ingredient to our spiritual journey is uncertainty. One of my greatest fears is failure. Um, one of my favorite comedians, John Mulaney, tells a story about getting hired to write for Saturday Night Live. And basically, he's at dinner with his mom, and he gets the call. And the news is so unsettling to him. It's good news, right? He got a new job at a hot you know, comedy place, and uh, he said he couldn't finish his meal. And for months, you know, he was starting three days later for like a month, he said he had a hot knife of anxiety in his throat. There's a connection between this fear of failure and fear of commitment in the first place. And uh, my sense is, my fear of failure is that it would be the end of credibility. Uh, I'm not on the right path if I'm fumbling around and failing. Uh, for him, he thought if he went to SNL, like the top tier of comedy, according to some people, uh, <laughs> that he, people would realize that he wasn't funny, which would be basically suicide for a comedian. But suffering, failing, enduring hardship, it's not the end of credibility. It is the beginning of understanding the love of Christ. Trust in the Lord, the way that the Proverbs lay it out, is all about blessing, but only in retrospect and gratitude in the moment. And uh, I want to say a word on blessing. It's been trending for a while. People will put hashtag blessed on their posts uh, on the internet. And um, basically what they mean is this thing that I'm experiencing is God's favor. And uh, there's a, well, unfortunately, that just isn't really accurate. Like, it's not how it works. When the Bible talks, and I don't, I'm not judging you if you write that on your posts. Let me make this clear. I'm just saying, for me, it's helpful to use an entirely different view of things um, so that I don't stumble into superstition. Um, but the, bless, the pronouncement of blessing is a tad bit arrogant, not because what you're experiencing isn't great, not because you're humble bragging. Saying this is a blessing is not your place. Uh, the divine affirmation is not a thing that the limits of our dimensions are able to really conceive or capitulate. Um, when the Bible talks about blessing, it says two things, basically. It says God is a blessing to us through Jesus, and we are meant to bless other people. That's basically the teaching about it. There's also just this latent superstition, as I mentioned. Like, if we don't say we're blessed, we won't remain comfortable. And uh, for me... <clears throat> And what I think the Bible is teaching here is not to say hashtag blessed, but maybe hashtag grateful. Gratitude hopefully transcends our circumstances. Gratitude is something we internalize that maybe we don't even need to hashtag. There's an illustration just to draw this out a little bit. I heard a long time ago, it's a little belabored, but uh, I heard it from, you know, some pastor preaching in some church, so... Uh, <clears throat> One night, this is about a village elder in kind of the, if you think about like probably Afghanistan 400 years ago or, um, well, maybe Mongolia because it's about horses. So uh, 
One night, a village elder's horse breaks free from the corral and escapes. And he convenes with the elders the next day, and they say, what a great curse. You must have done something terrible. And he says, we will wait and see. And a week goes by, and the horse returns. It's become the alpha of a herd of wild mustangs, and it leads all the mustangs into the corral. And the elders convene and say, what a great blessing. You have so much stuff now. The elder says, we will wait and see. A week later, the elder's oldest son is breaking one of the mustangs in the corral, and he's kicked and thrown, and he breaks his arm. And the elders again say, this is a terrible curse. You should get rid of that stuff. It wasn't yours in the first place. And the elder says, we will wait and see. And a week later, a local warlord is getting ready to go to war, and he forcibly recruits all the able-bodied young men from the village. And the elder's oldest son is spared. And again, all the elder can do is wait and see. And so this proverb teaches us sort of to exchange our self-referential favor for a personal attitude of thanksgiving. And that the moment where we can do that comes from a place of redemption and transformation. Uh, It recognizes not only that we can be grateful, but also that reality is always becoming, it's always learning, it's always growing. And there is, I think, a broken-hearted peace in that moment that we trust in an eternal God for today and now. Another word from Scripture that kind of connects these ideas of wisdom is James 3, verses 13 to 17. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, forsaken. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, meek, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. The path of God is filled with wisdom and it is necessarily through suffering. The peace of God bears us up when things are down, reassures us in the midst of uncertainty, and gives us guidance and direction. And we see in verses 7 to 8 of Proverbs 3 a reverent direction for our eyes. It says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Be in awe of the Lord and depart from evil. This will be like a good medicine, healing your wounds and easing your pains. For humility, we look to the eyes. This passage is ascending and it hits a crucial juncture. We turn from the heart to the path to where our eyes are focused, where we will actually go. The holistic life becomes the direction of practice and that's only accomplished by the facility of our vision. Humility is tough 
humility, it's like one of the fish in the barrels of preaching. You know, it's a, if you want to hit the guilt nerve, you just hit humility, prayer, tithing. Uh, but humility itself rises above guilt. The death and the resurrection of Jesus, the redemption of God, leads down this path of humility and broken pride, contrite hearts with a renewed sense of worth. At my last uh, army training, we're always with other chaplains doing different ministry stuff and doing different training things. And I was speaking to a young man who's a candidate to become a chaplain. He's a Lutheran seminarian. And I was really struggling because you could just tell he seemed very eager to chat, but he really wanted to debate, like, salvation, baptism, communion, the big Lutheran deals, you know? And I'm just not there anymore. I think something about my seminary experience sort of chased that fire out of me um, because it's a struggle for certainty that's not going to come. Um, even if we believe we have certainty about those things or about anything, uh, we're just shooting all over other people who are like-minded uh, as should-ing, right? <laughs> We're just basically being oppressive towards those that look this, at Jesus the same way we do. Uh, infantile religion asserts that we are either exclusive or that we are self-referentially incoherent. And wisdom leads us out of that phase of life. The age of the church is called the administration of the mystery by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Richard Rohr talks about the transrational third way. As many of you are familiar with Richard Rohr, he points out that conservatives get stuck in a phase of construction, literalism, attachment, uh, liberals get stuck in a phase of deconstruction, just tearing down uh, straw man after straw man. The real work is moving into a third way, the way of reconstruction, where we can take tensions of faith and live with them, where we can say, God's wisdom is guiding me towards compassionate action. And there lies an intense humility in moving into that place a scary humility that makes us feel uncomfortable. But it naturally arises out of the path of God's wisdom. The uncertain path forward induces a strange reluctance to puff up and naturally inclines us to look side to side at our fellow friends on the path, to find solace in fellow travelers. Humans look for certainty at the expense of unity, and there's no nourishment in certainty or in disunity. And so it's a lose-lose situation. It's a visceral and basic urge that causes us to create labels and barriers, tribal warfare, comforting lies about the otherness of the world. And what we need to do, like we need to do in our food choices is overcome what brings us comfort and indulge in what will actually nurture and nourish us, but for our souls. Here in Proverbs, we see this idea of reverence and righteousness, not self-righteousness. It's not about 
fear, guilt, or shame, but it's a profound emphasis on the fulfillment of contemplative action. Francis Chan <clears throat> uses the analogy of the Sunday morning church gathering as sort of like a huddle on the football field. And uh, the problem is we struggle to break from the huddle and actually run a play. God is not a side God. He is not fully known, but he is active in life. Reverence for God is reverence for the other. And the greater the humility, the greater the satisfaction in loving and serving the other. Life is full of turning, uh, turning away, turning toward. The art of turning itself can be soothing, like medicine, the Bible teaches. Turn yourself from evil. Revere the Lord. The wisdom of healing acknowledges wounds, and the wounds not only of our enemy and our soul, but those that we don't even know. And yet it is this path down which the eyes of the humble lead. God is a mystery and a pervasive one that touches every part of our life. God is in our actual. And we began by talking about flow states, and I want to conclude with a reflection on what seems to be the spiritual flow state, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The visible nature of creation and the invisible creator God gives rise to this quandary of how do we visibly manifest the image of God? And this wisdom state, this flow of virtue, is not something that comes out of nowhere or is simple or is easy. It doesn't come from a Sunday morning huddle, honestly. It comes from immersion in the principles of God, God's wisdom, the power of the Holy Spirit to not only transform our hearts, but to clear our path and direct our eyes down it. I want to take some time now to pivot to a time of reflection and conversation. Um, I want to nurture our understanding as a community, and we do that through TalkBack. So I want to read these questions to you, and I want to welcome the worship band back up. We'll have a musical interlude for some contemplation, and then we'll come back and, and see what we see and say what we say, as we usually do here at Madison Street. Where do we go for wisdom? How do we incorporate this into the here and now? What inspires us to love that we can surround ourselves with? Do we spend time distinguishing the heart and the eyes? Do we balance the philosopher and the pathfinder? How does our own mystical spiritual experience resonate in the path down which we are walking? <clears throat>